Aaron and I have known each other for a long time. Um, he's a great friend. And uh, so I, because I've known him for a long time and have loved him for many years, I feel like I've loved a, a little bit of this church as well. Um, and so I'm thrilled to, to be here. I remember before Aaron was here and now that his life is sort of around, sort of makes up a lot of, uh, or this community makes up a lot of his life now. Um, I'm excited to be able to open up God's word and share a bit of, of that with you. Um, well, already this morning before the service, we spent some time considering the Christian imagination. Uh, there are many things about the Christian and his imagination that we could have addressed, but we focused on how exactly the imagination is formative for your life and for mine. That entire talk was essentially a prologue to this sermon, but if you're anything like me, you don't actually read the prologue of any book. It's actually a huge waste of time. That being the case, let me review a few important points. Through the imagination, we imagine ourselves as specific characters in the world. And as characters, we live out set narratives. You're living in some kind of story, and that story structures how you see yourself and how you see the world. That story educates you about the types of things you should love and explains how human flourishing is possible. The important question that I have for you in this morning is, is that story a good story? Is it a true story? My goal is to invite each one of you into a true story in a way very much unlike any of the other uh, biblical gospels. The gospel of Luke is concerned about depicting a central human narrative, a human story, a narrative that stretches back towards creation and then forward into the end of history. And in that story, the gospel writer is inviting you to play a specific role, the role of a disciple. Who do you imagine yourself to be, or who do you imagine that you should be? It's important that we ask this question because our culture invites us to imagine ourselves as participants in their narratives about the world, and those are bad narratives. This is why this talk is an invitation, and the invitation is to come and imagine yourself as a character in Luke's story, to imagine yourself as a disciple of Christ. Luke's concern seems to be cosmic in scope. He aims to shape how you see all of history and even how you see yourself as a participant in that history. Okay, stepping back, here's how I want to organize our time this morning. Uh, for the next few minutes, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Plain, which was just read in chapter 6, um, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5 through 7. However, before we jump into that, that part of the sermon, or, or Jesus' sermon on the plane, it's important that you see the full story that Luke is trying to tell. Okay, so the, so the loose structure here is we're going to see Luke's full story, and then we'll, we'll jump in and ask the question, what is a disciple? And I just have to be honest with you, this, is, this sermon, I've structured it to be a little different than your normal dose. Um, uh, it, it, it's very important for you to be fed exegetically, sort of verse by verse, which I know is Aaron's habit. I want you to see the cosmic story of Luke. We're going to look at the text, don't get me wrong. We're going to look at chapter 6 in particular. But I want to first spend a chunk of, this, of, of the beginning here looking at the full story that Luke is presenting so that you can be, find yourself caught up in that story. And my main goal for you this morning is that you would imagine yourself as a character inside this grand story of Luke's gospel, specifically as a disciple of Christ. And my hope is that by imagining yourself as playing this central role 
in this cosmic story that all the other roles that you play will have a proper place. That your role as father, mother, friend, boss, or employee would be properly oriented towards this more overarching story in which you play the role of a disciple. So the first thing, seeing full Luke's full story, and the first thing we need to understand about that full story of human history is that according to the author, Luke is writing the last chapter of Israel's history. The last chapter of Israel's his- history. So look at Luke 1, if you don't mind. We'll get there in just a second. But, but each of the gospel authors start in, in a different spot with respect to the life of Christ. So Matthew starts with a lineage of Jesus. Mark starts with Jesus already an adult. Uh, John starts before even creation. But Luke begins a few months before the birth of Christ. Specifically, he focuses on the life of the relatives of Jesus, specifically Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist. So look at chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Oh, sorry, let me just introduce this just for a second. I mean, when we open up these lines, we find a familiar Old Testament picture, okay? Zechariah is entering the temple, uh, and he's performing an Old Testament offering of incense in the temple next to the altar, and then all of a sudden an angel appears. And look at what the angel says in verse 16. He says a few things, but let's just look at 16 and 17. He, speaking the son of Zechariah, or John the Baptist, will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. But notice what's happening here from the perspective of an Old Testament Jew, okay? This elderly Jewish couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are receiving an angelic pronouncement that they will have a son. The scene captures up a familiar Old Testament image that is meant to draw back our attention to the days of the patriarchs like Abraham and Sarah, who also received this sort of pronouncement when they were advanced in years. Luke begins the story here because he wants to stress that the story of Israel, a story that began with Abraham, is moving forward in a new and fresh way in the birth of John the Baptist. And of course, Gabriel appears not only to Zechariah, but also to Mary at the Annunciation. Look specifically at verse 32 of chapter 1. The angel tells Mary, He will be great, speaking of Jesus, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. For so long Israel had been without a king, but the son of David is coming to lead the Jews, or or how how Luke puts it in this case, the, the house of Jacob, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Mary's response to this amazing angelic pronouncement is recorded just a few verses later. In verse 46 and following. But look how she characterizes this news at the end of of her response in verse 54. She says this. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promises he made to our ancestor, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Now we could spend the rest of our day expositing Mary's Magnificat, as it's called. but, But here at the end, the author, Luke, is trying to highlight in the song of Mary, so in the, he puts in the mouth of Mary, that God's promises of covenant restoration, which God made to Abraham and to his descendants, is coming true. 
that the birth of John and in the birth of Jesus, the final chapter of Israel's history is being written now. And then finally, let's look at one more example at, at the end of chapter one. It becomes all the more explicit when Zechariah gains his speech at the birth of his son John, when the old priest proclaims that God has finally saved his people. So look at verse 68. He says this, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of those that hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, he has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hands of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in, the pre- in his presence all of our days. <laughs> in these verses, Zechariah connects the birth of his son, John, to the merciful promises that God made to Abraham and David. God's promises to cleanse the heart of his people and establish once again a loving relationship with them. But do you see what Luke is doing by starting the story here? Luke Luke is not just a mere historian. He is a meticulous theologian. For this reason, Luke begins his historical account of the life of Christ by grounding that history in the theological expectations of restoration and forgiveness, and specifically in the promises that God made to Abraham and David in the Old Testament. He artfully presents his gospel as the continuation of biblical history. And in Luke's telling, the continuation of God's dealing with the Jewish people results in a division within Israel itself. A division that's instigated by the person and work of Jesus between those who see Jesus as the fulfillment of this Old Testament expectation and those who don't. In fact, this is precisely where you and I are included in the story. We are entangled in this history of God's dealing with his people in the work of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves thrown into this history because while this story begins with the Jews, it quickly expands into a universal human drama whereby God brings about salvation for all of humanity. And this brings us to a second point. Not only does Luke recast his gospel... Uh, yeah, not only does Luke recast his got my second point. <laughs> not, not only does Luke recast his gospel uh, and the entire life of Jesus as a continuation uh, of Israel's history, but he also portrays Christ as the answer to human suffering. Christ as the answer to human suffering. For Luke, as for other New Testament authors, humanity at this point in history is afflicted with the pain of sin. There are numerous biblical metaphors for sin. For example, sin is described, particularly in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, as a burden that must be carried. Sin is also depicted as a a debt that must be paid. Uh, This is particularly true in uh, the the historical books like 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Samuel as well. Sin is also depicted as a stain uh, on our soul. In the Psalms, sin is depicted as, as an alienation from God. In Isaiah and Jeremiah, sin is characterized as a sort of obstinance 
a refusal to obey. In Deuteronomy, sin is, is, is described as a covenant infidelity to the king. And this is not like you broke a contract. This is like you like, committed adultery. You, Luke uses many of these metaphors to describe sin, but he uses one that's not yet mentioned that I think is pretty primary in his two letters, Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke and uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And that is this metaphor of sickness and health. In Luke chapter 5, verse 31, he says this, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not call, come to call the righteous, but the sinner, sinners to repentance. For some context here, Jesus calls Levi, the tax collector, to leave everything behind and follow him. Levi throws this great banquet this great feast includes a strange mix of social outcasts, tax collectors, and sinners, as well as those from the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees question why Jesus would let the rabble eat at the table. They miss the point that Jesus was trying to make. The words of Jesus here echo the condemnation of, that Ezekiel made upon the leaders of Israel. You see, if you can hear the, see if you can hear the allusion to Ezekiel 34 when the prophet said this, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fatted animals, but you do not tend to the flock? You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the loss? Instead, you have ruled them with violence, and cruelty. That's Ezekiel 34. Luke is making, well, he's making a contrast. Do you see how different this shepherd is, Jesus? He has come to heal the sick. Luke is making the point that when Jesus came into the world, he came as a doctor, and he came to heal the sick. This medical metaphor of health in 531 associates divine redemption restoration, and forgiveness of sins with good health. And it highlights Christ's mission of restoration and repair. For he came to make individuals healthy and to help communities of people flourish together. You see, a, a long history of sin has had a nasty effect on us. Luke, Luke often characterizes this period of history as a wicked generation. And we know that this is the case. More often than not, we are active participants in the same patterns of sickness and pain that have plagued humanity for generations. This plague eats away at our affections so that we desire the very things that make us diseased. This sickness infects our relationships such that selfishness and strife corrupt even the most loving relationships that we have. It festers up into dissent and quarreling. Sin is a cancer that creeps into your soul, corrupting not just you, but the people around you and the institutions that you create. Sin is the terminal diagnosis for this entire world system, a system in which children are trafficked and prostitutes are sold, a system of injustice where widows pay health insurance premiums for years only to be denied coverage when they need it most, a system that mutilates little boys and girls in the name of gender affirmation. Oh, you and I, 
in this wicked generation are in desperate need of salvation. And not just salvation in the future. We need salvation today. This history of sin entangles us. We are lost and dying, and we need a doctor. Luke understands that this history of sin stretches back to the very beginning of history, to the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. For this reason, Luke does something very different than Matthew does in his gospel. When Matthew writes the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, he starts with Abraham and then establishes a line of lineage, lineage so that uh, fr- from Abraham to Jesus. Matthew's point, Matthew's point is, is that Jesus is a new type of Abraham who will lead his people out of lifelong slavery. Luke, on the other hand, begins with Jesus and then works his way back to Abraham and then goes further back to Adam. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 in verse 23. And I won't read the whole thing. But on one side we have Jesus, the son of Joseph, and on the other pole we have Adam, the son of God. Luke is showing us that Jesus carries forward the history of Adam. So for Luke, humanity as a whole is given a new beginning with the second son of God. Right after this Lucan genealogy in Luke chapter 4, Jesus endured his father's history of temptation at the hand of Satan, but this time God's son does not sin. And at the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus dies on the cross, it looks finally like sin might win, but for, and for three days, sin boasted a victory over human history. But when God rose Jesus from the dead, the history of sin came to an end. And for the sick, this resurrection of Adam's son from the grave opens up a real shot at repair. Because Christ's resurrection life is a cure for sin and death, your life and mine can begin to incarnate genuine forgiveness and release from the sins that were once a death sentence. How do we receive this cure, this new life? We might ask Luke. Luke, tell us, please. Luke tells us in his gospel, but he explains more clearly in his second volume in the book of Acts. In Acts, Luke characterizes salvation as a repentance unto life. He says this repeatedly. And if there is one thing that Luke makes clear in his second volume in the book of Acts, it's that repentance is not merely a sequence of sorrow, confession, and pardon of sin. Oh no, repentance is more fundamentally A change in the very structure of how we live. A change that moves us away from patterns of waywardness and ignorance and into patterns of release and repair. A repentance unto life. You see, for Luke, a theology of human health and salvation is simultaneously a theology of repentance. And here's where we see a final development in Luke's historical narrative or his narrative history. First, Luke recasts the life and work of Christ as a continuation of Israel's history. And then he elevates Jesus as the answer to human suffering because he's the great physician. And now finally, he depicts the church as the full expression of Christ's mission of salvation. The church is Christ's mission, is the full expression of Christ's mission of salvation. The transition between the life of Christ and the early church may seem 
a bit awkward. After all, Luke presents a Messiah that came proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kingdom of of God is at hand, and then in the book of Acts, Luke explains that we kind of just get the church. But this is not at all how Luke would characterize it. For him, Jesus came proclaiming release to the captives, and the church is where the captives are released. The book of Acts, which recalls the origins and historical development of the Christian church, proceeds after Luke's gospel, not just as a matter of literary order, but as a matter of theological necessity. As a result of the life of Christ, the church emerged as a storehouse for those who are repairing. The church, for Luke, is the visible human witness to the Lord Jesus Christ inside of a world that did not know him and does not want to. For this reason, the church forms a type of community that destabilizes the assumptions and practices of our contemporary culture. This is what I take to be the central point for Luke in actually writing the book of Acts. We find one hilarious example of this in Acts chapter 19. When Paul turns to, returns to Ephesus, Luke recounts a speech given by Demetrius who made and sold old shrines, or new shrines, sorry, near the temple of Artemis. Demetrius gathers up all the other idol makers in the city and gives them this speech in Acts 19, beginning in verse 25. I'll read it to you. Men, he's really scared, okay? You know that our prosperity is derived from this business of making shrines. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that God made by hands are not God's. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one all of Asia worship and the world worship. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can't make this stuff up. So Paul lives in Ephesus for two years, preaching the gospel, and then suddenly Demetrius, it clicks for him. When the Christians come in, Artemis goes out. And with her, all the businesses that depended upon that sick cult of debauchery. When the Christian comes in, the cancer goes out. The chief complaint against the Christians is that they peacefully and lovingly turn the world upside down. They peacefully and lovingly turn the world upside down. The practices that they engage in the institutions that they build, the pattern of repentance and health that characterizes their life together, these things establish a new world order. They literally turn the world up right side up. Now let's step back. Do you you see the full story here that Luke is trying to show? Is Luke's theological history coming into focus? The story of Christ represents a continuation of biblical history. In the person and work of Christ, the history of humanity moves forward. And in that history, the life of Jesus represents the end of human suffering, 
Humanity is sick, afflicted with a disease that we inherited from our first father Adam. But when Christ came and defeated sin and death, exceeding in all the areas where Adam failed, he opened up a real shot of health in the now. And Luke does not just mean salvation in the future. And finally, the church for Luke is the greatest destabilizing force in all of history. Because in the church, Christ's mission of health and healing in the now is brought to manifestation. And salvation in the future is finalized, secured, realized, absolutely. This is a grand narrative. And it displaces all other narratives that our world tells. The stories around us and our culture that lift up things like money and sex and power are fake alternatives. They are not truly human stories. They make no sense the way God has created our world to work. And it is vital that we find ourselves caught up in this grand historical narrative because this Lucan story will make sense of your life. Now, for the last few minutes, let's take a specific look at the role that you are invited to play, the role of disciple. So now let's get to Luke 6, Luke 6, verse 17. After coming down with them, he stood on a level plain with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them. Then, looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, for your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Let's notice the setting here. Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray, and then he selects 12 apostles. And then in verse 17, we read that Jesus comes down from the mountain and he stood on a level place. That's why we call this the Sermon on the Plain. A level place. I didn't make this up. Also, Jesus is surrounded by the apostles, the disciples, and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So many of these people traveled for days to be here. Luke specifies why the people come in verse 18. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Again, Luke leans into this metaphor of sin and death as a type of sickness. And to be clear, Luke's desires that you and I see ourselves as these diseased people. 
Then finally, Jesus turns to his disciples. Everything that Jesus has said until this point in the entire Gospel of Luke, everything from chapter 1 to chapter 6, every word that Jesus spoke has been about himself. Every word that he has spoken has been to reveal who he is and who, what his mission was. And so here, for the first time in all of Luke's historical narrative, Jesus turns to his disciples and speaks directly to them. He tells them who they are in this grand narrative. And the first thing Jesus said is blessed. <laughs> There's some, a little confusion, I think, about this word, about what Jesus means by blessed. And this misunderstanding about this word may mean that we miss the point that Jesus is making. Okay? You see, this is a formula that is actually very common in the ancient world. In the Greco-Roman world, wise sages, wise philosophers would offer advice on how to experience happiness in a world filled with human suffering. These wise sages, these philosophers, would considered themselves to be the doctors for the soul, and they spoke about their own advice like it was medicine. Each sage would have followers and disciples that clung to the every word that they said. Some of these disciples put all of their sayings together in books, like uh, Epictetus would be a great philosopher who, whose disciples took all their words together, wrote it in a book, and then spread it around so that other people could live according to the, the, the medicine that Epictetus was talking about. And the disciples of this sage over here would fight and argue with the disciples of this, stage, this sage over here. But the huge debate in the ancient world was over which sage, which wise philosopher had the true words of life. Which sage could perfectly describe what human flourishing looked like? Here in this setting, Luke is doing everything he can to depict Jesus as one of these sages, as one of these philosophers. A sage with a wise word about what human flourishing will look like. With this in mind, some translations translate this word as happy here. Happy are those that are poor, for example. And this is much closer to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that he will bless the poor in verse 20. He is saying, here is what human flourishing looks like in the here and now. So every time you see the word blessed, throw it away. Be thinking happy, human flourishing. Unfortunately, it's not as catchy. And it, it's a little awkward, but it's closer to what the text is getting at and what Luke is getting at by depicting Jesus in this way. And this is where it gets interesting because the way Jesus describes human flourishing is shocking. It's totally unexpected. He doesn't say, flourishing is it when you have lots of kids. Flourishing are those who have tons of money. Flourishing are the prestigious ones in society. Flourishing are the virtuous ones in society. Look at 6 verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. This is not exactly expected. So what is Luke doing? Here Luke gives three depictions of a blessed human. Poor, hungry, and weeping. The second two are, are sort of just depictions of the first. 
right? descriptors of the first. They are um, hungry and weeping because of their poverty. So the important question is, what does Luke mean by poor here? He needs to make some sort of sense. What's clear is that this passage is not about the poor in general or in socioeconomic terms. This passage is about Israel. Luke here is echoing a tradition that goes all the way back to the Psalms in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, there are numerous not-so-poor people who begin to present themselves to God as the poor. David, the greatest king of all of, all of Israel, chief among, among, us, among those who would describe themselves as poor. The Psalms use poverty as a metaphor to designate their present situation of need and utter dependence. And these Psalms, especially in the Psalms of David, this situation of need or this poverty typically includes a need for physical health or salvation from external persecutions. Also in the Psalms, the poor becomes a designation for the nation of Israel itself, oppressed by the nations and crying out to God in her need as she has done in Egypt. So the poor in this passage refers first and foremost to Israel. Remember whose history you're caught up in. First it refers to Israel, seen as oppressed by Satan, sin, and the cancerous systems and institutions of this wicked generation. The poor, the hungry, those who weep, are Israel in need of health and salvation. Help and salvation in the here and now. By contrast, the rich, the haughty, the rulers who are to be plucked out of the... Or in that second, in the woes there, the, the rich, um, those who are well-fed, those who are laughing, those are the very people who will be plucked up from the thrones of this world. They are the oppressive demonic powers and their agents. So here's how you should think about the poor. The poor have left everything, and they have expressed in this way that they expect everything from God. But my question for Luke is why? Why are these people, the poor, paradoxically called happy or blessed, which we're not going to use? Why are these people identified as those who will experience human flourishing? Well, look at, look at the second half of verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours. The poor are blessed or happy because they have received salvation from their destitution. And this salvation comes in the form of a king and the establishment of a kingdom. Jesus Christ is establishing a kingdom. And in this kingdom, the poor receive everything from their father. They are not hungry. They are fed. They do not weep. They laugh. They are not sick. They are healed. Blessed are the poor, because the kingdom of God is a form of salvation to them. God is establishing his kingdom in the church. And in the church, there is health for you. The opposite is true, too, in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and, and weep. The rich, the well-fed, and those who laugh, they have received their salvation now. And as the kingdom of God breaks into this world order, as health and healing are released into this world, 
The comfort of the rich will not be comforted. The food for the well-fed will not sustain them. And those who laugh now will mourn and weep. But these people are not you. Or at least, it doesn't need to be. More than anything, these Beatitudes are actually Luke's invitation to you. Come and be a disciple. After all, happy are the poor. Because the kingdom of God, as it breaks into this world order, as it's established in the life of the church, this kingdom of God will be a form of salvation for you. In the grand historical narrative of Luke, the story of Jesus is a continuation of God's story of salvation and health. In this story, Jesus is the great healer, the ultimate answer to all human suffering, and the church is the full expression of Christ's mission of salvation. In this narrative, Luke invites you and I to play the role of a poor disciple, and a, and a disciple doesn't live according to the narratives of our current culture, narratives that depict money, power, sex as the answer to human suffering. Those are stupid narratives, and those solutions will not help you and the pains of human experience that you experience all around you and in your relationships. But if we're honest with ourselves, we often spend a significant time living by those other narratives. We sacrifice our lives playing roles that will never heal our cancer. The businessman who sacrifices his family on the altar of advancement, the woman that, in, that imitates the sexualized pornographic model of beauty. These are wicked stories. Playing those roles will offer you no salvation. You're living in some story. You see the world through some kind of lens. What character do you imagine you're playing? And in what story are you acting? You see, there's a Christian story about the world, and that is a story above all stories. And it's vital that you imagine yourself as a character in that story. In many ways, your life will depend upon it. Let me pray for us. God, as we look at our own lives and the lives of, of our family, we see example after example of the cancer of sin. It affects how we love one another. It affects how we view ourselves. It affects even the people we love the most and want to sacrifice for, we find ourselves not sacrificing for. We are deeply afflicted by a sickness. Teach us to be poor disciples. Teach us to be a type of community of disciples that establishes a healthy world order as the church lives out a model of redemption. We pray these things in your name. Amen.